2: Hello, this is The Prospect Podcast and I'm Jay Elwes, the producer. Welcome everybody to your weekly serving of politics. I think this is,
1: you know, a play by the Scottish Government ultimately to try and stoke up support for a second independence
2: referendum. And culture.
3: Will you perhaps be formulating an Edinburgh show in in character as Lady Hale explaining the devolution?
2: (laughs) And for our main event this week we hear from Freya Johnston who's written a brilliant piece for us on the history of politeness. We Brits are meant to be good at it, but is it all an act? One that we put on to disguise much more barbaric instincts that lurk beneath? And I've found that when
0: I'm on holiday in other European countries, if I try to say please and thank you, or sorry, remotely the number of times that I would in a normal interaction in in England. If I try that in another language, the response is bemusement and generally mild contempt. Uh, You know, It comes across as very peculiar that the way in which we we conduct ourselves um, with the sheer redundancy
2: of our pleases and thank yous and sorries. But that's all to come a little bit later. But first, I'm here with my colleagues, Steph Boland, our digital supremo, and Alex Dean, our politics correspondent, who for various reasons... This week have both got their eyes trained on Scotland. And first, Steph, um, we are looking at uh, the beginning of the Edinburgh Festival at the moment. You've been looking at that. What do you see when you look north?
3: Yes, it's true. It's time to fight your way down the Royal Mile and blow up a massive inflatable cow because the Edinburgh Festival is here. Um, of course, when we talk about the Edinburgh Festival, we're colloquially referring to what's actually a group of festivals, which run from the beginning of August through to about the 27th and that includes the Festival Fringe, a book festival, a television festival, and of course the Edinburgh Military Tattoo, which is my grandmother's personal favourite. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In short, that means Edinburgh's pretty busy at the moment, the rents are rising, and all of the bars have got more comics in than you can shake a stick at.
2: So it's got absolutely massive. I remember when I was there as a student uh, in the 1990s, it was big, you know, it was a really big deal. But now, do you think it's got so big it's got a bit out of hand?
3: It's huge, so we don't have the numbers for this year, yet but we know last year there were over 53,000 performances in over 300 venues which is huge for a city the size of Edinburgh Mm. Um, and we know it's set to be bigger than ever this year. Airbnb alone have estimated that they've facilitated 120,000 visitors bringing in about £50 million for their hosts Um, but not great for people who are trying to host a show as some of the rooms now cost upwards of £400. And those aren't the only rising costs. With more and more people coming, theatre licence fees have been hiked up slightly cynically by hmm. theatre owners. Um, we know they rose 800% between 2006 and 2009, which is quite a lot of money to be putting on your impoverished students yeah, who are running up to do their show.
1: Quite interested in uh, the, qu- the question of how much Edinburgh's economy. Boosts when the fringe comes to town and how much it revolves around that, I imagine quite a lot.
3: Yeah, it's fantastic for the economy. I mean, not every local is going to be happy with it, but it is great for the city. Although, what's odd, I don't know if this was the case when you were there in the 90s, Joe, but I was at the Beck Book Festival in. 2014 and it's very busy in the city centre and Leith looks completely the same so where that money actually goes and is distributed out to I suppose is a a bigger question Yeah,
2: there's (laughs) opinion is a little bit divided in Edinburgh residents they look at the festival, they're not entirely sure whether it's uh, for the city or for certain bits of the city and uh, if you recall the episode in Train Spotting, uh, the first day of the Edinburgh Festival, that <laughs> gives some uh, uh, indication of the more extreme attitudes towards the festival among Edinburgh's residents. But um, so, what uh, is the effect then of the fe- the festival's huge? Um, it's becoming really expensive. Like, what effect is that having on up and coming acts who want to get in?
3: Well I think it's really important to stress how much a part Edinburgh can be part of your comedy career and a good Edinburgh show isn't just a ticket to a year of gigs booked elsewhere and a lot of young performers are willing to spend the money because they go hey a good Edinburgh review will get me bookings that'll more than make that back. It can be really career changing. Um, going back to 1972, Billy Connolly's The Great Northern Welly Boot Show yeah. um, is credited with really breaking him out because their lighting rig failed. And he did some improv with guitar and banjo and telling jokes. Hmm. Or more recently, people like the Mighty Boosh and Miranda Hart have won Edinburgh awards and then gone on to their own series. So it, c- it can be a huge deal. That being said, that depends on who you get to your show. Whether you can get the audience numbers and the critical interest. So, um, stand-up Shappycor Sandy has, has said that even though Edinburgh's getting bigger, it's still the same reviewers who are deciding who's in and who's out, and that's a real problem. Mm. Um, the gatekeepers. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, the case in so much culture. But for a festival which now has fifty-three thousand performances, you'd think you'd have more than a handful of critics who. It deciding who's going to do well off the back of it Um, and Stuart Lee has, has warned that you know something that used to be a utopia for artists has just become profit obsessed.
2: Oh no so what can we do then to for the Edinburgh Festival to become what it once was?
3: Well they're doing more around free shows and there are fantastic grants for people trying to go to Edinburgh but the big proposal at the moment is to extend the length of the festival to take some pressure particularly off accommodation and to give theatres a way to make more money without having to charge comics massive fees for the setup costs whether or not that wouldn't just make it even bigger and more (laughs) unsustainable, but that's the big proposal at the moment four weeks rather than three keep it going longer make it bigger but hopefully cheaper
2: well brilliant let's uh let's hope they Sort that out because I remember being absolutely <laughs> brilliant fun. Alex, you've also been looking north of the border, uh, but you've been concentrating on the political side of things in Scotland. What have you been looking at?
1: That's right, Jay. Um, I think everyone who kind of keeps keeps one eye on what's happening in politics knows that there's all sorts of problems with uh, Brexit and Ireland, and that's kind of dominating the headlines. Um, and I think you know it's fair enough; it's a huge issue, almost as big though, and kind of more beneath the radar uh, is what's happening with Brexit in Scotland. Scotland, like Northern Ireland, uh, of course, voted remain. To really understand the clash that's starting to emerge between um, kind of the Scottish government and the UK government, uh, I think nothing indicates that better than looking to the Supreme Court last week, uh, where this remarkable case unfolded. Um, The Scottish government has tabled a rival piece of legislation to the EU withdrawal bill. it's kind of going at loggerheads and we get the result in the autumn. But clearly all is not well in the devolution settlement when you've got this kind of tussle going on in the courts, the highest court.
2: Right. So the SNP then has put down its own rival to the EU withdrawal bill.
1: That's right. So the withdrawal bill is now on the statute book. Mm. Um, It's passed. The Scottish government has, has come up with this kind of variant form touching on devolved powers which is calling the continuity bill um essentially the row is over once powers are kind of repatriated from the eu whether they go to scotland or whether they go back to westminster and then westminster decides whether to give them to scotland and to what extent um, and that spats at the heart of it all dig into it and it gets it quickly gets incredibly technical and uh, Lady Hale, who's the president of the Supreme Court, said that this was a case for hot towels on the forehead. So, he, no. you know, this, And this is, uh, you know, someone who knows, couldn't know more about this kind of thing. Um,
3: Will you perhaps be formulating an Edinburgh show in in character as Lady Hale explaining the devolution. (laughs) I think
1: some sort of absurdist theatre could arise from this because it really is, it's ridiculous. Um, It's incredibly important, but also incredibly bizarre uh, when you've got this situation that's quite frankly unprecedented. The Saul Convention, um, which has never been violated, Uh, states it's kind of a constitutional convention that states that um, Westminster will never legislate on devolved issues without the consent of the devolved legislatures Um, and it's never Kind of been broken before, and it looks like it's about to be,
2: so is the Westminster government gone and had to sell this to the Welsh Assembly as well
1: yeah, so um kind of the government tabled the withdrawal bill, and initially Scotland and Wales withheld their consent mm. um The government then kind of ceded a little bit of ground, and some people in Wales kind of said maybe that's a little bit better uh ceded a little bit more ground and 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 Wales kind of gradually uh person by person kind of came more on board and in the end did grant its consent. Uh, Scotland hasn't done so and uh, the Scottish Parliament has passed this this rival piece of legislation which uh, is is fundamentally speaks to kind of a constitutional question at at the heart of our politics at the moment. And what the Supreme Court decides will have serious ramifications indeed.
2: It's additionally surprising because if anybody's been looking at any border uh, in terms of Brexit and the, the structure of Britain, they've been looking at the border on the island of Ireland. This one seems that the Scottish border, this has not been an issue so far. Do you think that this is now going to come back as a really big problem that could be as big a problem as the Irish question? Or is it something that will remain a bit more technical do you think
1: i think it's somewhere between the two i think ireland is kind of a quite unique case um i know steph this is something that you you've been commissioning and, and reading quite a lot on um the history of of ireland is obviously incredibly fraught and, and violent unfortunately and and that lends it all kind of a charged nature that maybe scotland doesn't have um, but that doesn't mean that scotland isn't important um it's technical as well, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. The whole of Brexit is technical, I think.
3: I suppose longer term as well, the, the the thing that's so fraught on the island of Ireland is that you have a land border between the UK and the EU potentially, and and some discussion as to whether that might change. When people talk about the idea of Scotland gaining independence and then joining the EU, is that completely pie in the sky, or?
1: I think you're totally right to bring that up because I think this is, um, you know, a play by the Scottish government ultimately. Um, to try and stoke up support for a second independence referendum. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter. There's, just because there's political games behind it doesn't mean it's not important. It's still happening. We've still got this kind of clash of the titans going on in, in the UK's highest court. Whether whether it will stoke up that support is unclear. I think it couldn't hurt, though. Are you calling for a second Indy rap? Alex? <laughs> is that what you're doing? Come on, out with it, well, if so. I, I'm not calling for one. All I'm saying is that I think if there were one... Uh,
2: the, government, the Scottish government is playing its cards well at the moment. Alex, Steph, thanks very much indeed for that. And now we go over to our main conversation, which this week features Freya Johnston of Oxford University. And she was speaking to my colleague, Samir Rahim, who we go over to now. Freya, thank
4: you for joining us. Um, in your excellent piece that you wrote for us um, in prospect recently about manners good and uh bad you tell us that there's something a bit well rude about the enforced civility of the polite notice that you see all around these days especially related to parking or any other sort of social interaction well what is it about the polite notice that that you think is a bit rude
0: Well, there's something curious, I suppose, about the fact that it tells you already that it's being polite before you've even got to the substance of what it's asking you to do, which is indeed usually not to park somewhere. Um, It's curious in in giving you that directive in advance in saying to the reader uh, or the would-be parker, this is something that's polite, when in fact it's up to you to be the judge of that. So that's the nature, I suppose, essentially of its rudeness. It's a bit like uh, the train announcer who says apologies for the slight delay when it might be a delay of 10 minutes, 20 minutes. It's not up to the announcer really to say whether it's slight or not. It's up to you to be the judge of that.
4: We had a letter in, uh, in response to your piece which said that the origins of the polite notice was that it was meant to, from a distance look like police notice. So it's meant to actually take on a sort of authority that it that it doesn't have. And there is something mm. quite policing about that, isn't
0: it? Yes, that's peculiar. I I've, I've heard that too that there's something you're supposed in a sense to misread it or to understand it as coming from a higher authority. But I don't know if people universally realise that when they now announce these as polite notices, some of them are undoubtedly genuinely meant to be read as well-meaning rather than as threatening imprisonment <laughs> if, you, if you don't <laughs> obey them. It's a bit like when you you know you talk about you know
4: no offence Freya, mm. and then of course that's the that's the phrase that allows you to say the rudest thing that you possibly can.
0: Yes, in fact I had a child round for for dinner the other night who said no offence but you've cooked way too many noodles, um, which is <laughs> actually fairly inoffensive by the standard of these things. But but it's a sort of uh, get out of jail free card, isn't it? You can say no offence, and then really say whatever you want. Another thing that children sometimes say is, I wouldn't want you to think that I am being nasty or not to be nasty, but... And then, of course, you can, you can unleash the worst thing possible because you've already excused yourself.
4: So this excusing yourself in advance, and, and there's also it's crept into things like email etiquette and mm. the rest of it where, you know, Kind regards um, is a phrase that you take issue with, which means that I'm going to have to start rewriting my my emails.
0: (laughs) Well, in fact, in in the many books available now on email etiquette, kind regards is recommended as the default sign-off. But there is something a bit peculiar about that, as with the polite notice, because again, it's telling the recipient of the message this is something that you are already meant to understand as kind, when in fact it should be the recipient who's making that judgment, not the person sending it. So I think that there is something that gets people's backs up slightly about it. I've heard other people complain about kind regards without quite knowing what it is they're taking issue with. But I think it's this problem, again, of being told already how to respond, even if we don't really mean it that way when we say it. And issues of sort of civilization and politeness are... Uh Go back
4: a long way, of course, Mm. and your your article sort of deep goes into a deep dive into those things. Um, You know, is it fair to say that sort of, you know, there's a theory that I think developed by Norbert Elias and the civilizing process that um, the medieval age we were a lot less squeamish about sort of bodily functions Mm. and all the rest of it, and we somehow got more refined um, over the centuries. Mm. And that process of us developing these codes of politeness Mm. was part of us becoming civilized people.
0: Yes, absolutely. That The increasing shame about bodily functions leads you to behave in a way that we might sum up as now more civilised. Um, but it also involves paying other people to do your dirty work for you or a certain kind of hands off behavior in domestic life or say the introduction of knives and forks as opposed to using your hands to eat. So these these build up into a code of practices that we might sum up as politeness or civility. That's a very local example, um, table manners, or whether you're behaving properly in a queue, not queue jumping, for which the you know the British are famous, the avoidance of queue jumping, whether you give up your seat to a pregnant woman on a bus, you know, these kinds of instances of local manners and politeness. Um, those are, I suppose, what we tend to mean these days by manners. But the word can also mean a much larger sense of civilization, or the the manners, or rather the morals or behaviour of a nation. And of course, the two things are intimately linked. One French sociologist has claimed that um, he could infer a whole cosmology and political philosophy from the command stand up straight. So they're, they're, it's not as if they're not related to each other. Yeah but you might take manners to mean something very local or something very big. Um, talking
4: about sort of national identities or maybe even national mm. stereotypes, the idea that the English have of themselves as both uh, a polite queuing society, but also mm. a sort of quite, um, that's maybe described as the sort of the prissier side of things, yeah. but, but also as the blunt sort of... Um, unrefined John Bull as Mm. compared with the French sort of overly polite but actually ultimately hypocritical
0: absolutely and the French are often portrayed in English cartoons or satires from the 17th century onwards as people who are in fact very very rude by virtue of the sorts of politeness they claim Um, or you know they develop lots of lovely sauces to put on their food because the meat is rotten Mm -hmm. whereas British beef doesn't need that kind of uh, treatment thank you very much They regularly, the English top surveys of the most polite nation in the world. Uh, There was one in 2011, I think. But what does that mean? I mean, we certainly say please and thank you a lot more, I think, than other European nations. We apologise a lot. We do apologise a lot, that's true. And I found that when I'm on holiday in other European countries, if I try to say please and thank you, or sorry, remotely the number of times that I would in a normal interaction in, in England, if I try that in another language, the response is bemusement and generally mild contempt. <laughs> uh, you know, it comes across as very peculiar that the way in which we we conduct ourselves um, with the sheer redundancy of our pleases and thank yous and sorries. On the other hand, we're quite bad-tempered in terms of diagnosing uh, what we think of as rudeness in other people. So I think as a as a nation we are we are quite um, alert to other people's infractions of politeness or what we perceive as rudeness. We get quite cross about it, perhaps more than other nations do. Um, going, talking about sort of the, the rise of
4: politeness, it came about at the same time as, um, you know, as we're becoming more civilised, things like slavery and imperialism mm. were also happening at the same time. And there's a sense that as we became more refined we sort of outsourced our barbarism to other countries (laughs)
0: yes yes I mean there's there's um there's one argument that would say well the thing that allowed the English to become more refined was the exploitation of other people that's to say it's slavery that permitted the wealth that then allowed Mm. the leisure that permitted refinement and civility and politeness to grow Um, But there are also two rival theories of of manners, one of which would say that politeness or civility is all about respecting another person, treat other people as you would be treated yourself. That's one way in which we might understand manners. But there's another kind that's equally um, dominant, um, especially among colonial or imperial powers, which is to say our code of manners is the right one. And we will go and take it to another country and impose it on that country, uh, whether they like it or not. So there's a there's an odd sort of unmannerliness about how codes of behaviour come into being.
4: Yeah, talking about um slavery, you quote in your piece um mm. Samuel Johnson's famous yeah. um uh, quite rude comment mm. about uh the Americans. Yeah. Um the loudest yelps of liberty come from the drivers of 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 Negroes, mm. as he says. And in a way he's an example, I know you've written a lot about Samuel yeah. Johnson, of this um the power of disrupting politeness, the power mm. of saying what uh, is not able to be said mm. or shouldn't be said and the, the value
0: of that. Yeah, he took a real delight in that. In fact, another comment that he made about slavery was made in the course of a, a dinner at Oxford where he toasted. Um, he said, Here, here's to the next insurrection of the Negroes. In other words, up the slaves, come on. And, you know, this was socially an absolutely devastating thing to say. Another On another occasion, he says to a famous would-be social reformer, Catherine Macaulay, well, if you're so in favour of equality, let's have your footman to sit with us at the table. Of course, that doesn't go down well at all. So, no, he was very good at puncturing um, assumptions of um assumptions of equality and showing that actually a kind of subordination or inequality operates all over the place and that's partly because he often felt himself to be socially awkward so it yeah there are good examples in his in his life and writing of a reminder to all of us that however we might think those inequalities have been leveled out actually they always operate um that's some, in some way, in every, in every setting. And
4: talking about um, inequalities, I mean,
0: politeness
4: and that culture of politeness assumes that everyone knows the code and is working mm. at an equal level. Mm. But if there are differentiations of power between people, that can uh, change things up, can't it? And the, yep. you know, novelists have taken advantage of that. I mean, thinking, you know, Jane Austen, who you've also yep. written about for us for, pr- for Prospect the famous scene in Emma on. Box Hill, where yep. um, she's rude to, to Miss Bates, yep. and uh, and and Mr Knightley has to correct her for mm. for doing that. But and it's because she she has assumed that they're all working in the same level, but actually mm. there's a power difference between her and the person that she's insulted.
0: Yeah, she's fantastically cruel to Miss Bates, and the 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 wrongness of the action is that Miss Bates is socially the most inferior, and most dependent person. In that setting, in that environment of Highbury, Emma is the richest and the most beautiful, the most favoured. So why should she go out of her way to make a joke at the expense of the most vulnerable person there? Um, and of course, the person who doesn't, who doesn't get the joke. So it's partly a cruelty about comedy. And Austen also has fantastically polite people who are very rude. So, yes, she's, a, she's very good on that score. I mean, in a way, we would say now check your privilege.
4: Yes, That's the sort of thing. Yeah. That same sort of, uh,
0: and and the novel does there. that. The novel humbles Emma because, after all, she starts off saying, "I'll never get married. Um, I, I I won't. Uh, I won't need to do that." But she is in a novel of courtship that will generically have to end in marriage. So she gets she gets put in her place in the end. Um, she doesn't get to remain a a wealthy spinster after all.
4: Freya, you and I shared a teacher, Eric Griffiths, at uh, Cambridge, um, and he uh, had a famously abrasive teaching style and almost used, you could even say rudeness, as a pedagogic tool.
0: Yes, um, and uh, he's not alone in that, in terms of uh, a teaching method. Um, and I found it useful, sometimes terrifying and sometimes uh you know um, upsetting but it made my style a lot better it taught me to communicate plainly not rudely but plainly i wonder whether nowadays in the in the sort of the days of rate
4: my professor and where Mm. students are a lot more sensitive about um or we hear at least that they're a lot more sensitive about their interactions with uh, with their teachers whether that kind of style really seems like it's gone out of fashion
0: well, I suppose we're encouraged to think that we should never be rude, but that can mean a lack of differentiation in responses to people. Um, and I think it's also there's also a sense in which being rude to someone means treating them as an adult sometimes. Not always. It depends what kind of yeah. rudeness we're talking about. But giving it to someone like it is or being fairly blunt or robust in reply um, to a piece of writing is also paying it the compliment of being grown up. Rate my professor has its problems too, of course. I mean, especially as regards female professors or tutors on there, they tend to be rated a lot in terms of their appearance. So I'm not sure it really has brought <laughs> in anything much better to what was there before.
4: Yeah, and I'm sure with you know people can be anonymously rude about. You. Absolutely, that, that leads to the sort of the culture of mm. the online culture of uh, rudeness, which um, yeah, because we don't have that interaction with the real person, it can go to really. Extreme levels quite quickly.
0: Yes, we? anonymity is is the big um, the big the sort of main parent, I suppose, of of online rudeness because people feel without that responsibility of face to face interaction or identifying themselves that they can be fantastically nasty. I mean, of course, the same is true of the old TLS reviews, <laughs> uh, where people did not have to identify their reviews by their name. Not only the TLS, but the whole culture of anonymous reviewing, as exemplified in the Times Literary mm. Supplement. Because people felt, you don't know who I am, they also felt licensed to say extraordinarily nasty things uh, in, in in such pieces of writing. And the equivalent of it now, trolling on Facebook, is even worse.
4: I've always felt
0: that actually when
4: you can actually get a, a good friendship uh, can start with a bit of an abrasive or rude comment or, mm. or, or something that shows that you've emotionally moved that other person. Yes. Uh, and then the value of a good apology afterwards to bind you together. That little sort of interaction I found mm. in my friendships and relationships uh, yep. has been a good, has been an interesting starting point.
0: Yes, well, it's you've sort of put someone to a test of some kind or through, you've crossed a threshold of some kind and, and emerged from it intact, haven't you? You've been through something <laughs> that was potentially quite damaging and shown a way of of coping with it. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think we should be frightened of rudeness. It's how you deal with the aftermath of it, or as you say, how you you make amends for having offended or upset someone, if that genuinely is the case. There's an awful lot of talk of people feeling offended these days too, to go back to the whole discussion of student uh, responses. An awful lot of talk of feeling offended or trigger warnings, where I think the offence is... um, dubious to say the least it's a lot more anticipated than real and do you find
4: that your students you you teach at oxford Mm. um do you find that your students um are
0: less robust
4: than uh you were when you were at cambridge
0: i don't know whether i was robust and i certainly got subjected to a lot of things that required me to be robust so i guess (laughs) that that toughened me up a bit um i think it doesn't necessarily help students not to be um, called to account or to read things they might feel uncomfortable with because that sort of experience is going to happen to them when they leave university anyway. So never being told, actually, this isn't very good or never being told, okay, you don't want to do this, but I think you should just do, do this, read this book anyway. If you don't like it, write an essay about why you don't like it. If you find it offensive, write an essay about why it's offensive. Don't just ignore it. So I think... Um, I think the sort of policy of trying to, for instance, trying to ban speakers from Oxford on the basis that they might be offensive, uh, or that they might be debating abortion, for instance, and there might be a pro-abortion speaker there, trying to stop those kinds of debates happening, I think is really uh, upsetting. I don't think that's a good thing for universities to be attempting to eliminate causes of offence.
4: And is it? It goes back to the point of the beginning. Really, it's about an interaction between two sides. And if Mm. you just have, if you never hear from the other side, then your own views can never be sharpened up.
0: Absolutely. And you you, you don't understand what you're opposing if you refuse to listen to the opposing argument. Um, And in fact, the consequences of that kind of behaviour can be really dangerous. Uh, You know, it's not the case that Practitioners of mass murder were not civilized people. I'm not suggesting that people trying to ban debate in Oxford are mass murderers, but what, why is it that you know some some uh, some tyrants are also extraordinarily civilized people? Well, it's 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 not the. the The reason that that's happened is that they've ruled certain people out of the definition of those that they include within a circle of civility. In other words, some people have ceased to become people and become instead barbarians. If you rule out a whole opposing argument, a whole group of theories and leave them on the outside rather than actually taking them on, on their own terms, you risk doing something similar.
4: I was speaking to um, an Iranian friend of mine Mm. um, not so long ago. And in Iran, he was telling me they have this um, culture called tarof, mm. which is an excessive politeness, which <laughs> it derives, I think, from sort of courtly manners where, you know, if you go to somebody's house um, and for dinner, they've invited you for dinner, um, you have to refuse to eat what they uh, offer you uh repeatedly right uh and then the person has to insist that that is the case you know you, you must eat and you no, yep. can't eat and uh, and he said that he found it a relief in britain that people were <laughs> a lot more straightforward about what they wanted yeah and there was a kind of honesty he yeah. felt um in the interaction um so in a way it can be the politest thing to be to be the most impolite.
0: Yes, it's funny, isn't it? It reminds me of the, you know, the supposed convention in the 18th and 19th centuries of a woman saying no to a marriage proposal, with the assumption that it would turn into a yes, as long as the person asked enough times. Right. So that somebody again, I mean, to go back to Jane Austen, somebody like Lizzie Bennett, who really wants to turn down Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice. Um, says no and Mr Collins thinks it's a joke not only because he's a pompous oath but because people typically did say no first time to look coy or you know that was the convention so to say no and mean it was actually a very difficult thing to communicate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you Freya. Thank you. That was my colleague, Samir Rahim, talking to Freya Johnston. And you can find a link to her piece in the description under this podcast. Or if you prefer, search Freya Johnston Prospect Politeness. Also, our August issue is out now on sale in all good news outlets. And we're asking this month, what if Brexit comes grinding to a halt? The answer, it seems, is quite a lot. Get a copy. You can't miss it. It's got a big Union Jack on the front cover. Many thanks for tuning in. I'm Jay Elwiz, standing in for Tom Clark, the editor. He'll be back next week. And as I mentioned, you can read Freya's piece loads more on culture and politics and more besides on our brilliant website. That's www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And while you're there, you might notice that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable. Be sure to tune in next week to The Prospect Podcast.